running through announcements here from the front. Well, I'm, I'm continuing our whole series on faith. I've said to you before, God spoke to me early in the year and said, I want you to teach on faith until you exhaust the topic. And uh, I have no idea how long it's going to take me to exhaust the topic. But one of the things that I think is really important for us as people of faith to understand is that we can speak either positively or negatively into our world. I've actually titled the discussion point for today, if it rained soup, I'd only have a fork. Now, if you can just imagine uh, going outside and it's raining tomato soup, how much of it can you catch in a fork? Not a lot, eh? Right? If you're a positive person like me, you'd run outside with a bucket. I actually don't like tomato soup, but if it was like cream of mushroom soup, I'd run out there with a bucket, right? Because I'd like to gather up all the soup. Now, as a matter of fact, the title actually comes from a saying of my great-grandfather. Now, depression runs in my family. And you can go all the way back through my uh, uh, paternal line and you'll find depression. There are six children in my family. Every single one, not, they're not my children, but I've got my siblings. Every single one has been through long periods of serious depression. My great-grandfather used to say this. I'm so unlucky that if it rained soup, I'd only have a fork. Well, you know what? He died and left very little behind except this ring. This signet ring that I wear passes down through the eldest male in our family. It's made from gold he found, and it's about all the gold he ever found. He was a Dane. He worked in the South African Merchant Navy. He jumped ship in New Zealand during a gold rush in New Zealand. He didn't find much gold there. Found his way to Australia. He ended up fossicking for gold. He used to pan for gold in the little creeks down southern New South Wales. And he did eventually buy a farm. But he was never very well off. Well, I'm not surprised. Because he declared himself to be unlucky. I'm so unlucky that if it rained soup, all I'd have would be a fork. Now, how often have you heard people speak negatively into their own lives? I learnt how to be a negative person because I spent a lot of time with my grandfather and with my father. And you know that boys look to their fathers and their grandfathers as role models. By the time I was in my 20s, I was an expert at being negative. I reckon I was probably the most negative person on the planet. Until at 30 years of age, I just decided I didn't deserve to be as unhappy as I was. And I actually got some professional help, but more important than that, a friend of mine invited me to church one night. And he took me right down to the front. It was a little tiny church called Bethel Church in Christchurch, New Zealand. And uh, the worship team was made up. They were all, all uh, Maori folk, right? And they got a particular way of playing guitars. Uh, Jeanette describes it as that, That's how she describes it. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, 
They start worshipping and I'm standing at the front and suddenly I feel like there's this stream welling up or a spring welling up inside me and everything negative was actually coming out and as I, I sung the words, all that negative stuff was just coming out of me. It was pouring out of me and going into the atmosphere and you know what, I've never been the same since. Jeanette thought I'd gone stark raving crazy, so she came to the same church the next week, and guess what happened to her? The same thing. And not long after that, we were baptised. We were baptised in Scotland, as it turns out. We went to a little church there, fabulous little Pentecostal church, where we started to learn about the truth in God's word. And now I have to tell you, I'm one of the most positive people on the planet because I learnt how to change my language. By the way, I did a little bit of research on this saying, I'm so unlucky that if it rained soup, I'd only have a fork. And I believe it, it was originally expressed by an Irish writer, Brendan Behan, who lived between 1923 and 1964. He was in the IRA, he spent 14 years in jail, but there he learned how to speak the, the is it Gaelic they speak in, no, that, in, in Ireland? He learned how to speak Gaelic. And he wrote a lot of poems, he wrote some plays, and, and he said this, if it was raining soup, the Irish would go out with forks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a little bit of history on that, on that saying. So I guess we should say with apologies to Brendan Behan. Well, words are really, really important. And uh, we know that God actually framed the world by his word. In Hebrews 11, verse 3, this is the English Standard Version written for people who live in the UK. I mean, English Standard Version, it sounds like it might be from the UK, doesn't it? But um, it's, it's, a, it's another pretty good translation of the Bible. But in Hebrews 11, remember Hebrews 11 is the great faith chapter in uh, the New Testament. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So if we go back to Genesis 1 where the history of creation is recorded, we see that God spoke. He said, let there be light. So God's words actually framed the whole of the universe. Now, of course, we're not God, so you and I cannot create a new star by merely speaking it into existence. But we can, at the very least, frame our experience of the world in which we live by the words that we speak. Pastor Phil Pringle, who heads up the C3 uh, group of churches, says that the primary purpose of the tongue is creation not communication. The primary purpose of the tongue is creation, not communication. I've shared with you before about my daughter Ainsley when she was doing a certificate three in childcare. She, she did this straight after she finished high school. In fact, she got, she got a job in a childcare centre uh, before schoolies, so she didn't actually have a schoolies experience at all. And uh, her, at her school, they organised a special schoolies for, for their kids. They were actually going up to the Sunshine Coast, not down to the 
to the Gold Coast, but she, she had a pretty tough time. And, and I know that in that childcare centre, people like her, they were made to, to clean the toilet floor using toothbrushes, and it was wicked, really, really wicked. But every day, Ainsley would say to me, it's going to be a good day. No matter what her experience had been the previous day, it's going to be a good day. The psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I know Jeanette and I, we often thank God for every new day because we know that his heart towards us is a heart of blessing. Go back to Genesis 1. The very first words from God that Adam and Eve ever heard were words of blessing because it simply says in Genesis 1.26, and he blessed them. And he blessed them by giving them dominion, by appointing them his royal representatives on earth. What greater blessing could you have than to represent the God of the universe, the one true living God on earth? And as Jesus says, we're empowered. If you have a look at Matthew 28, where he gives us the Great Commission, he says, Lo, I am with you always. And we have his authority on earth until he comes again. So our words are vitally important because at the very least they frame our experience of the world but they probably actually create it as well. So you might read in the newspaper or hear on the news or through social media that we're in terrible economic strife. Unemployment rates are increasing. People can't get enough work. Those who are in work aren't getting enough hours, etc., etc. Guess what? We don't have to participate in a recession. You know, we're economy proof. But you see, if we take on board all the negative stuff we hear in the news, we will end up operating and speaking out of a heart of fear, not out of a heart which is actually based on the Word of God filled with his promises of goodness toward us. Sure, bad things happen. Right? I told you last week, I think, I got a quote of $20,000 to fix my car, which is stuck in my garage and it won't go anywhere. Right? Can't start it. They tell me I need a new engine. Jeanette said to me one night, she said, how do you feel about all this? Right? And I said, I'm okay because we've now got room in our lives for a miracle. Now, I'm sincere about that. I refuse to allow that circumstance to rob me of the joy that I have because I am a son of the one true living God. I'm looking for a miracle. I don't have $20,000 to fix my car. If I saved long enough, I would. But it would take a while. I don't want to pull back from what we're doing. I'm not complaining about my salary. I'm quite well paid. But we've committed it to a whole range of things, including supporting Ignite Life Church until we grow large enough for it to support itself. And we don't mind doing that. It's a privilege. It's a pleasure. It's a blessing to be able to do that. So I'm looking for a miracle. And I'll have a testimony of a miracle. And I don't know what it's going to look like. But I don't care. I think Gina might need a bit of a miracle for her car too. Is that right, Dougal? It's a work in progress. 
a work in progress. <laughs> so, you know, that's a different perspective, isn't it? I could feel sorry for myself. But you know what? When it, even when it happened, I said to Jeanette, aren't we blessed that we have two cars? Because we can juggle that. Aren't I blessed that David was in Brazil this week because I've been able to borrow his car? It's manual. <laughs> Took me a little bit of getting used to, but it's okay. You get used to it after a little while. We're so blessed. And I actually, I looked on the internet and if I had to, I could actually get to work by public transport. So you know what? It's not that bad. When there's about 1.2 billion people in the world who are wondering where will they get a handful of rice from to feed their family. So it's not that bad. I've got room in my life for a miracle. It's your perspective that makes the difference. I did actually sort of pray over my car and I said, you know, be healed in Jesus' name. <laughs> but it hasn't sort of got up and walked yet. But you never know, that could be the miracle. I might, I might get in there and turn the key and it just might all work. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Because I know my God's got my back. And you know, he has never, ever let us down. Never. He has never let us down. And I don't expect him to start letting us down now. Some wisdom from, from the Proverbs. And this, I think, really emphasises for us how important it is to recognise the power in our tongues. And I'm quoting here from the New Living Translation. Proverbs 12 verse 6 says, The words of the wicked are like a murderous ambush, but the words of the godly save lives. Proverbs 18.21 The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. You know, I've known a lot of people over a long period of time and the people who worry me the most are the people who speak ill of their children. I was in a, another church where I was working with uh, another volunteer and uh, every time we were rostered on together, she would start the conversation by telling me how terrible her children were. And one day I turned around to her and I said, I know why your children have turned out the way they have. Because you've spoken it. You've spoken it over them for years and years and years. And guess what? You've reaped what you have sown by the words that you have spoken over them. I've shared with you before, and Amy's not here to verify it, but when our children were growing up, we always resisted the temptation to tell them they were naughty. We never once said, you're a naughty child. We did sometimes say, that behaviour is naughty, that behaviour is unacceptable, and they will tell you, I often said to them when I was disciplining them, I cannot let you grow up like this because if I do, you'll have no friends. I didn't want my kids to grow up as selfish, horrible, backbiting kids. But we never said anything about them. It was always the behaviour 
And so we reinforced positive behaviours and we disciplined negative behaviours. But whenever there was discipline, we weren't disciplining our kids because they were naughty. It was their behaviour that didn't meet the standards that we accepted. Okay? So when, when our kids were at the age when they were watching TV, we had some really simple rules. I, I like to keep it simple for kids. No sex, no violence, no magic. Keep it simple. No sex, no violence, no magic. Why? Because you watch that stuff on TV, you hear words that then frame what goes into your heart and out of the heart the mouth speaks. So if you allow your kids to be influenced by all that stuff, guess what? They are actually going to end up mimicking it. The kids got to the age where they used to watch Rage on ABC. You know, that program that goes sort of all night, Saturday night and into Sunday morning and so on. We used to watch it with them. And uh, we'd, we'd often get to a video clip where we say, now that video clip is not the kind of thing we want in our house and so we turn the TV off. There are actually a lot of popular songs that are really nice. They express good sentiments. There's nothing particularly wrong with them and they're not contrary to the word of God either. But there are others that express sinful desire and negative things. And we didn't want our kids to feed on that. And uh, you might laugh that we had such uh, simple rules. But, you know, kids respond to simple rules. By the way, when they got a little bit older and they were interested in boys, I had another simple rule. You never marry someone who doesn't open car doors for you and who isn't scared of moi. I asked David and Heath not so long ago, are you still scared of me? I don't think they are. <laughs> anyway, so listen, the tongue can bring death or life. So words that you speak to your children, words that you speak to your partner, words that you speak to people in your workplace, they can bring death or life. You know, I'm not even very careful about saying something like, I think I'm catching a cold. If, if there are all these colds going around, why would you want to catch one? Right? I mean, this is how stupid the world is. I think I'm catching a cold. Why would you want to catch one? Now, it's far better to say there's a cold that he's trying to catch me, but I'm not going to let him catch me. I woke up last Monday morning. I felt pretty crook. So I said, Lord, I'm too busy to get crook. I don't need this cold. I woke up Tuesday morning. I was okay. <laughs> now, my only boast is in the Lord. I don't say I'm catching a cold or I don't even say I've got a cold. It's the cold that's got me. I, I, I don't want it. I don't want to get any kind of sickness because I'm frankly too busy. It matters to God. In Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37, this is what Jesus says. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Wow. See, God takes our words seriously. So we need sometimes to reframe the words that 
we speak. I want to give you two biblical or two examples from the Bible. And if you'll excuse me, I need my glasses for this. Remember the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had no intention actually of even preaching that day because uh, him and the disciples had been pretty busy and they were, they were pretty tired. And Jesus' idea actually was that they'd get into a boat and they'd, they'd row out into the lake and actually get away from crowds for a little while. Yet people followed him. And uh, they were a long way from a uh, KFC or a McDonald's. It had been a long, hot day. The people were getting tired and hungry. And this uh, miracle is uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 14, 13 to 21, in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17, and in John chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And all of the accounts are a little tiny bit different. But one thing that they have in common is what they say about the disciples. So you picture it, there's maybe 15 or 20,000 people in total. The Bible records the number of men, but there would almost certainly have been women, teenagers and children as well. So possibly somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people <coughs> getting pretty hungry. So in Matthew, Jesus uh, is preaching and after a while as the evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something. And this is what they said. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Right? They're speaking lack, not abundance. They're speaking lack. All we've got is five loaves and two fish. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. In John, this is what they are reported to have said. This is Philip. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And yet here's Jesus, who... It's recorded in, I think, Matthew already knew what it was he was going to do. In a sense, he's testing his disciples. Are they going to speak words of faith or not? They didn't. They looked around at the facts and they allowed the facts rather than the truth to persuade them. And as we know, Jesus demonstrated his power by multiplying the loaves and the fishes, the people were fed and there was food left over. Go back to the Old Testament. 
I've titled this uh, slide, Good News or Bad. Remember that after the children of Israel had been in the wilderness for some time, Moses sent a group of spies into Canaan, the promised land. The uh, episode is recorded in Numbers, chapter 13, verses 17 to 33. And I'm, I'm reading here from the New Living Translation. Now, I won't read it all because we don't have time. But when the spies came to the valley of Eskol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two men to carry it on a pole between them. Can you imagine a cluster of grapes so large? It took two men to carry it on a pole. They also brought back samples of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol, which means cluster, because of the cluster of grapes the Israelite men cut there. But you see, Caleb and Joshua came back with a good report. They said, this land is indeed a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But yet the other spies said, but we saw giants. And in our eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. So despite the fact that they'd had a promise from God that he had set aside a land for them and that he would be with them as they took this land, the people chose to go with the majority report. Not the report that Joshua and Caleb brought with them. I want to say something now about controlling the tongue. Just keep a check on time here. Um, just very quickly, I think it's useful to think of the think mnemonic. T represents the question is it true? Is what you were saying based on God's truth, his promises, his nature? H, is it helpful? Is what you're speaking actually going to help the person who hears? Is what you are speaking going to help you in your situation? Is it going to help you into your future? I represents inspiring. Is it inspiring? When you speak to other people, do they have a sense that you're inspiring them or are you actually pulling them down? Do you inspire other people to fulfil the call of God on their lives or do you discourage them? K, is it necessary? You know, sometimes the smart thing to do is to actually hold your tongue and not say anything. And K, is it kind? And there's a very good discussion about controlling the tongue that you'll find in James chapter 3, virtually for the whole of that chapter. I won't read it now, but James 3, verses 1 to 11. Just a final point that I want to make is that Controlling the tongue requires us to understand something about our heart, the very inner 
being. In Luke 6.45, Jesus is recorded as saying, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So, as part of the process of taming our tongue, we need to ask ourselves, what is in my heart? You know, I had a salutary lesson about what was in my heart some years ago. It would be probably 15 years ago now. I used to often cycle in the mornings. I love cycling. I used to often cycle in the mornings. And early one morning I was cycling and a huge dog came rushing out of a house. And I yelled out, F off! Ooh, ah. Have I? Well, I went home and I said to Jeanette, I had no idea that that was in my heart. You know, when, when the chips were down, when I was frightened and there was this big dog chasing me, I didn't say, in the name of Jesus, be still. I said, F off. That's really naughty. You see, check what's in your heart. Because the word of God is true. What you say flows from what is in your heart. <laughs> and so, we just need to guard our hearts. We need to do all that we can to ensure that what we feed our spirit on is truthful. That it comes from the word of God. And don't be like me. When you get chased by a very large dog, what should come out of your heart, what should come out of your mouth is, in the name of Jesus, be still. All right? Not some other colourful language that you probably got from watching the wrong programs on television. Well, folks, we're going to celebrate this morning because we've got our brand new kitchen, our brand new area for community. So may I simply say, God bless you. If any